Uh, but before we do that, uh, let's pray and then we'll start. Thank you, Lord, so much for an opportunity we have to gather. Thank you for uh, last week and just being able to play some games and enjoy each other's company. And for today, just being able to be back in your word in a new part of scripture, going from the Old to the New Testament and to consider some of the most fundamental but so radically important truths of your word. Please uh, give me strength to just explain these things clearly. I pray that your spirit would just move through um, all of these young people and all of the uh, lives that they're living. Um, and though the excitement of this season seems to be dissipating constantly and things like hybrid school and, and being at home and, and just the world looking very different than it did a year ago can be uh, quite depressing and, and boring. So often, Lord, we pray that you would just ignite us to enjoy the kinds of truths that you have for us today and how you shape everything in our world. And for us who know you, you shape everything for our good. So please encourage us and be with us as we study this. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Um, so as you guys probably know, if you don't know, uh, we're going to start what will probably be a five-week series on worldview and just going through some uh, really basic understandings of how uh, our worldview and the Christian worldview is shaped. Um, the reason, or at least one of the reasons why we wanted to do this is because this group in particular is actually made up of a very broad group of people in transitions. Uh, so a whole bunch of you guys, uh, only a year ago, were in grade uh, That's good. Okay, we'll find out. If so, we'll, we'll go with it. Thank you. Give it up for Elijah. Amen. So hopefully this is okay if I kind of ramble around. That's, that's my bad. Um, but because of that, what we wanted to know is we wanted to help you guys be able to be shaped by an understanding of worldview. And the way that you should understand your worldview is through the lens of the person who actually created the world. That's the most logical way that I could explain why we're doing this. And as you step into those new environments, you should, we hope, one of our fundamental goals with you here is that you can open up to your Bible anywhere and with some hard work and context and hopefully a background of other scriptures that you've learned from here and from Sundays, be able to have that with some basic processing and by the power of the Holy Spirit have that shape you and not only how you live, but how you think. And if it does those kinds of things, it will create for you a sort of joy and comfort in this world to tackle any kinds of problems that go uh, against you in this world. And we'll explain some of the other reasons and important reasons uh, for that kind of thing as we go through. But uh, what I figured is as I was going through multiple scriptures and all sorts of places in the Bible and trying to determine the best place that we could land to discuss worldview for five weeks, I figured would have to be a person who's reliable, a person in the Bible who could explain this. If I were to call them out of the past here into the future and have them stand here, who would be someone that would be 
just a fabulous and wonderful example to put before you to teach you worldview. And one of the best people in the Bible that could do that for you is the Apostle Peter. The reason the Apostle Peter is so helpful um, among people is because, first of all, most obviously, he knew Jesus Christ. He walked with God who walked on this earth and lived life with him uh, as his uh, Christ being his master, but also being his friend. And he learned intimately from him. But also at the same time, he also learned with Christ as a failure. Peter, as many of you know, failed many times in the gospel. And so through those kinds of experiences, it developed in him, as you read through his story in the Bible, a really special kind of humility. He betrayed Christ when Christ was uh, uh, taken in the garden uh, right before he was crucified. He denied uh, Christ as his master and his friend three times afterwards. And even after all of those things, weeks later, when Christ reappeared before him, he forgave Peter and reestablished Peter and had all of those things retaught to him in just a short amount of time and sent him off to start what we now know as the church. And as he did that, you can see how that shaped him as a regular, real human being into something seemingly so much more because his story through Acts is powerful. The way he navigates through teaching before emperors and people and thousands of people is incredible. The very first sermon that he preaches, the first sermon in the book of Acts, is before thousands of Jewish people who only weeks before killed Jesus Christ. And he boldly tells them of that sin to their face as he tells them also of that person who they murdered came to die for them. And 3,000 people were saved there. The rest of his story through Acts is also incredible. He's used in multiple ways to not only continue to proclaim the word of God, but to perform many miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. And his uh, testimony is written out all the way up until Acts 15. And the last thing that he's mentioned in Acts 15 is, of course, a very bold and encouraging message to a council of church leaders throughout the ancient world. And then after that, the story kind of passes the baton from Peter to the Apostle Paul, who you guys probably know much about. But after that, at least historically through the Bible, we don't know what happened to him. But the one thing that the Bible does tell us is because he wrote a letter. And the letter he wrote is called, of course, 1 Peter. He wrote a second letter called 2 Peter. And 1 Peter establishes that after he left the church in Acts, in Acts 15, he left Jerusalem and he went to Rome. And history tells us that a couple years after he was in Rome, he was martyred. He was killed because he was a Christian. He was actually crucified upside down. And when he was arrested by the Roman officials and uh, been charged with uh, treason and was crucified, he actually asked to be crucified upside down, is what history tells us, as a sign of submitting to the fact that he didn't want to die exactly like his Savior died, as a kind of honor and respect um, towards the Christ who died for him and died for all the people he'd been preaching to in Acts. But before that happened, he did go to Rome, and he wrote this letter to all of the churches surrounding Rome. And it was important that he wrote this letter because Rome, at that point, was the most powerful and well-respected city in the ancient world. It was like the center of everything that happened. It was well-organized, technologically advanced in every way, but Christians during this period were at a serious loss. They were being persecuted relentlessly. 
um, multiple emperors who had gone through. You'll hear those names in your uh, history classes potentially or in future sermons. People like Trajan, people like Nero were terrible emperors who did terrible things. And because they didn't want the people in Rome hostile against them, they actually stopped uh, what they were doing and started blaming Christians for what they had done. And so because of that, Christians were randomly persecuted constantly. And so Rome, in a sense, was a safe place for many people. But for Christians, it was becoming a very, very dangerous position to be in. And so Peter, in writing this letter, sums up the message that he has for the people. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, what he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19 is this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The point that Peter wanted to make is that regardless of the persecution they were having, they had two things that they could rely on. One was the good news of the God who loved them and who was not unaware of their situation and gave them good encouragements in that period. And the second thing that he wanted to tell them is that they didn't only have a good message, but they had a good future promise. The promise that this persecution would one day end, even if it ended in their deaths. And it would end with a future salvation, a eternal relationship with this Christ in his new kingdom he was setting up where there would be no more sin and no more death. And so because of that good news and that good promise, they had every reason to not stop being Christian or hide being Christian, but being more excited about being believers. But regardless, he needed to fill them with very good truths as people were not only opposing their worldview with words and intellectually, but they were opposing their worldview with force. And you, I pray, don't get into particularly dangerous situations because of your faith, but if you are a real Christian, you will be attacked with indifference. You will be threatened with people who do not agree with your opinion and will be angrily vocal to you about. So because of that, we want to walk through at least five verses. It'll help kind of explain some of the fundamentals that Peter is going to. Most of these verses are in the context of suffering and persecution, but Peter doesn't actually start his discussion like that. Where we're actually starting today is in verse 13. I'll make sure I can write this uh, appropriately so you guys can actually write it down. Peter wants to establish in this very beginning of the letter, at least the beginning of this series we're going through, is there is a certain way that you can live as a believer, that you should live as a believer. And if you live in that certain way, there will be a certain benefit. Something good will happen if you act good. What he explains is that the Christian is called to be zealous for what is good. Now, zealous, if you're not familiar with that word, just means to be very excited about, to be so excited about something that you act in a certain way that people know you're excited about. And you're not excited over nothing. What you're excited about is for what is good. And of course, the Apostle Peter has been building up 
two chapters previously and a half of another chapter of explaining to them what the good is. And the good is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what Peter explains to them first is this, that if you were a Christian, you were someone very, very excited about the good news of the gospel and everything involved with the God who created that good. And before he has a discussion on suffering, what he explains is this, and he does it in the form of a question. He asks, if you are zealous for what is good, if you are very, very excited about doing what God says is good, will people want to be for you or will people want to be against you? And the explanation that Peter says is that people will be for you. There's a kind of way that you can act according to Christian principles, and most people will not want to harm you. Now, if I ask you this question, is this statement always true? Is it always true that if you act as a good person, no one will want to harm you? Is that true always, yes or no? No, I think most of you just shook your heads, and you're right. This is not necessarily an absolutely true statement, but there is a sense when this is mostly true. There is a sense in which God has created our world in such a way that people cannot help but recognize what is good. There is a way that God has designed this world to explain to you and people you know who are not Christians and who do not love God that they cannot help but follow God's design. And as such, they recognize something about this good. Now, the rest of the sermon is really just going to explain at least two senses of what we mean by this. I'll leave this part here. I want to explain at least two ways in which you can understand what Peter means by this. And so there's two new words. I hope this doesn't feel too much like your English class, but there's at least two things that are important examples. The first is the natural or moral law of God. Now, what we mean by the natural moral law of God is this. It's a natural law in the terms that it is in your very nature and in the nature of every single person that you know. Something about a law, there's some rules and principles that are inherent in your very design. They are natural to you. And those, and those that are natural to you are everything dealing with morals. The natural moral law is the natural sense that you and everyone you know has about some things that are good and some things that are bad. There is something that every single human agrees with concerning morality. And of course, if we're going to be talking about worldview and establishing principles, we kind of have to start with Genesis. I want to give you at least three Genesis verses that explain what I mean by the natural moral law of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. We know this verse well. We know it's an establishment of the fact that God created everything and owns everything. But what it's really also talking about is God's design for everything. Everything points back towards the fact that God is our creator. Peter even mentions that in his summary verse in 1 Peter 4.19. But what he says in Genesis 1.26 is that the pinnacle, the best part of God's design was you. 
was human beings, was the fact that every single one of us was created in the image of God. What God is trying to explain when Genesis is presented to us in scripture is that it's not just that everything points towards the glory of God. You in particular are the greatest observable evidence of God as creator. Your complexity, the way you think, the way that you have some kind of understanding of good and evil, all of that comes from the fact that God designed you himself. And of course, when we think of Genesis, we usually think of creation, and then we skip right to, of course, sin and the fall, and sin entering the world and corrupting everything and changing this good design of God. And when God explains in Genesis the created order that's changed by sin, he explains it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. And God, in his Trinitarian form, speaks to himself by saying this, Behold, the man has come, become like us, knowing good and evil. Now, what's he talking about there? It's weird that he says man has become like God because man was already like God. Man was created in the image of God. But now in Genesis 3.22, when man knows good and evil from eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, man is like God in a second way. And the reason is this. Man used to be like God because they were created to glorify God. Now they are like God because they want to be God. Man has chosen from eating the fruit from the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sin entering this world that now they have determined that they want to decide what is good and evil instead of submitting and obeying what God says is good and evil. That has fundamentally changed the way we think and go through this world. And I think maybe it's the biggest reason for having the whiteboard. There's a very simple way to explain this. If you've seen this illustration, I apologize. This little circle is you. M is in me, unless you want to put the banana and see the news here. This is you. This is you going through the general world and doing all your things. And you interact with all sorts of other circles of things. Let's say this is your family. Let's say this is your friends. Let's say this is your science class. Let's say this is a dodgeball from the hand of Josh Furco. These are all the things that you interact with in your daily life, okay? I don't know if you always interact with Josh Furco dodgeballs, but at one point you do. And the way you think about them is you approach them and you think about them and you make your own decisions about them, okay? This is my family. This is what I think about them. This is a dodgeball from the hand of Josh Furco. This is how I think about it. And this is how you observe your life. And most people think, this is God. That's how I interact with God. God is one more thing that comes into my life that I now make a determination about. I make a consideration of who God is and if I should obey him. But even if you're not a Christian, this is actually an example of how we think after the fall. is that that's God. And everything that you interact with is under the banner of everything you do and everything that you think about is in God's world, is in God's bubble. And we do not have an opportunity to get outside of that bubble and think, 
I'm going to make my own determinations about God. Because if we are in God's bubble, then we submit and listen and obey to whatever he has said about his world that he's created. But after the fall, man decided to leave that bubble and believe that they could simply interact with and make their own decisions about God. And because of this, because finite man, every single one of us thinks that we can decide to obey or disagree God, even the consideration of that is sin, which is cosmic treason. It is assuming that we can make any determination about a world that we are part of a designed order in and we did not create. This is what has changed in Genesis 3.23. And because we think we can determine what is good and bad, we have now left this bubble and we are guilty of punishment. But of course, what's happened after this is the whole rest of the Bible, which explains very clearly that God did not want to punish human beings but rather give an opportunity that all men might be saved. And so the question is, if we're outside of the bubble, is there any hope that we have to try and explain to other people how this happened and how we can, again, submit to God's decision for everything, how we can be cleansed from our sin, how we can start thinking rightly about the world? And the answer is that we certainly can. Because Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, after the fall, after Adam and Eve have two boys, Cain and Abel, and after one of those boys, Cain kills his brother Abel, the first serious sin in the Bible, only a chapter after the fall. After that, Adam and Eve have another child named Seth. And Genesis chapter 5, verse 3 says that Seth was after the image of Adam, after his likeness. Do you see what kind of language Genesis is bringing up? The fact is that the image of God is still upon man. Though this is now a corrupt understanding of our design, the design is still there. And part of that design is the fact that every single one of us on some level agree as to what is good and what is bad. This natural moral law is the first thing that explains it. If we want a good chapter to understand how this image is still upon man, then you should go to Romans chapter 2. Specifically, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. If you don't want to go there, that's okay. I'll read it for you here. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 to 15 says, For when Gentiles, that is non-Christians in this case, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, even while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The point God is making is this. You can meet a non-Christian, and they will do something good, or they'll notice you doing something good, and they will also call it good. Why is it that a Christian and a non-Christian can both agree on something that is good, even though one of us doesn't believe in the God who created it? Why is it that this natural law, this moral law of good and evil, is worked out by uh, non-Christians very often? The reason is because they're still created in the image of God. We can't help but agree with God's design, even if we hate God. 
There are so many ways in which we agree with this. One of the really excellent verses that Jesus himself speaks, Luke chapter 6, verse 33, says this. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. The point that Jesus is making is that the demonstration of a Christian life is when you do good to people who do bad to you. And that's how you stand out in this world. But the way Jesus brings that out is that you can do good to someone who does good to you, and that's okay. But even sinners do the same thing. Even people who don't want forgiveness for their sins, people who hate God, even they recognize when someone is kind to them. They recognize when someone is gracious to them. They recognize when someone has been charitable to them, when has given them something good. The reason is because they've been designed after God's image. God's goodness is upon their hearts. They can't help but do it. First Peter is a fabulous book to do this because... Peter constantly gives tips to the people of how they can use this kind of design to explain to people not only how we live the Christian life, but that they can therefore be Christians and are already living it out in many different ways. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter is explaining a situation in which you can prove the existence of God to somebody else when non-Christians see you doing good to someone else, even though they are being bad to you. Let me give you an illustration of this. Imagine you go on Monday to school. I'm going to say in person. It's a little bit easier to picture. And you start trying to explain Christianity to this friend. And the two of you start fighting about it. Now, on your side, you know that somewhere in the Bible, it says I should be nice to this person. So as you start arguing about Christianity, you do it in a way of trying to be nice to them. But they don't have the same conviction. And they start getting angrier and angrier at you. They start getting riled up at you. They start throwing hands gestures at you. Maybe at one point, they get so mad that they shove you. And eventually, they leave you because they're frustrated with you. Isn't it strange that in that situation, as you got louder and louder in your arguments, more people started watching you, and they started trying to figure out what you're arguing about. And as you start arguing, and they see you acting in a good way, and they see him acting in a foolish way, they start to see that there might be something more to what you're saying than they thought. They can recognize that you have done something good, and they can recognize that the other person has done something wrong. And that is a kind of example that Peter gives the people that is your end to explain that those people are made in the image of God. That is the natural moral law of God written upon our hearts. Now, of course, he says that that comes through a mechanism that you understand called the conscience that their conscience bears witness. It is a device that God has put in their hearts and in their minds that if they do something wrong, that they are living out the design of God's good and evil upon their hearts and they know something is wrong. The question is, what happens when someone doesn't seem to be moved by their conscience? We would agree that not everybody understands everything about good and evil or even listens or cares about what is good or evil. 
Now, the book of Titus, in Titus chapter 1, he explains clearly that some people have a defiled conscience. Some people have gone against that internal understanding of good and evil so often that it becomes less and less relevant to them. They've eroded their conscience. What happens when you meet people like that? Is there another way that you can point to the fact that God has designed the world in a certain way that either proves God's design or stops sin in some way? way that I ask questions, the answer is yes, and it is this. Oh, my handwriting, that says the civil use of the law. S-I-V-I-L, civil, civil use of the law. And civil sounds like civilian, and a civilian is a member of a certain society. And that is what the civil use of the law is explaining, which is this. God did not just design you. God designed the society you live in. When many people created by God get together, they get together in a certain way that also proves that God designed even society. If you want to grab your Bibles, if you're still in First Peter... He explains that in another place, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, which is this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The mechanism in society that God has created in a way That proves God's design. And I'll write down that word. Is the government. Now we heard from Sam not long ago about the government and understanding submitting to the government. And that is a very important relevant message that I hope you listen to. If not, it's on our website, I believe. But what we're talking about specifically is the fact of this. When people get together, there is something that they understand which is that someone should be in charge to control and bring order and design to our society so that we can thrive and we can survive with each other. Because every human will understand we're broken or messed up in some way. And there has to be rules to keep things together. And the reason we think there's rules is because God designed it that we couldn't get together and not have rules. And even unbelievers who disregard and do not love God, even they believe that there should be rules. And those rules always point towards two different things. Peter explains them as punishment and praise. Every single government, every single leadership group in society believes that certain people should be lifted up and pointed at and said, look at these guys. These are guys are very good examples of how all of you should act so we can all get along and everything can go well in society. They need people to praise because it contributes to a good society, which means they believe something is good. And they believe that should be explained and publicly shown to everyone. But they also believe certain things should be punished. They believe, just like Paul explains later, 
Romans 13, 3 and 4, the same kind of passage as 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, explains very clearly that people believe that certain actions means you have neglected society, you have disregarded society, and you must be therefore removed from society. There are certain things that you can do that means you don't get our laws, you are out of here. The way that Paul says it in Romans, which is Romans for some reason, Romans. The way Paul says it in Romans is through wrath and approval. But those are literally just two different words for punishment and praise. And the whole point is that God has designed us to live together in such a way that we have to agree on certain standards of good and certain standards of evil where we're never going to survive. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever considered that there's certain fundamental truths that's very easy to prove to people that are right and that are wrong? Someone name out something that you could talk to an unbeliever and you would both agree that it is wrong. Say anything that you think you could talk to someone who's not a Christian and say, this is wrong, and they would agree with you. Throw it out. Murder, probably one of the biggest ones. Anything else? Stealing. Anything else? Those are two of the biggest ones. Lying. That's another fabulous one. Now, let me ask you a question. Murder, stealing, and lying. Have you ever asked yourself, is it some of the most fundamental truths that people agree are wrong are the second half of the Ten Commandments. Why is that? Because this was God's first society that he established. And these were the fundamental rules by which they would agree with, not only so society within them can thrive, but because God has a God-ordained order for all human beings. And even some of the worst societies in history agree to many things not only the Old Testament, but the Ten Commandments in particular. Man cannot help but understand that in society, God's way of doing things is best. People can't help but agree that the best way we can conduct ourselves is according to biblical principles. Because we can't help but live under people who have been created by God. And God has always done that in a way that benefits even people who don't love him. Consider the death penalty. I know that it is something that's genuinely difficult to deal with, but many societies, especially through history, have agreed that if you kill someone else, your life as well is forfeit. The punishment is for what you do, it will be done unto you. Why is it that taking someone else's life in most societies is agreed that that is wrong? Why is that? And it's not just because it's something that hurts society. I think there's something fundamentally wrong with it. Genesis 9, verse 6. God talks to Noah after the flood that destroyed all of creation. And he gives him one of the first principles, not only for morality, but for society, which is this. If you murder another human, your life must also be taken from you because man is made in the image of God. One of the most fundamental things that we disagree on is not because it's bad to society, but because it's bad just because it's bad. And the Bible says that's because you can't help but understand 
that you are made in the image of God. Both on your heart and on the law of everything that brings us together as people. God has proven that he exists and there is absolutely no way to disregard him. The reason we explain things like this is because, for two reasons, I suppose. One, to encourage you, and I hope one, to be convicting to you. The convicting thing is this, which is, many of you, and I've talked to most of you, if not all of you, many of you will tell me very confidently you are Christians. And listen, if you tell me you're a Christian, unless I see something particularly contrary, I will trust you and believe that. But you also have to understand that even unbelievers have an understanding of what is wrong, and they're watching you. And if you say you are a Christian and you do something wrong, even unbelievers are going to notice it. They understand hypocrisy. They understand lying. They understand something on a fundamental level. And though you can use it, it can and sometimes should be used against you. If you believe you are a Christian, you can't just love what is good. Verse 13 says you have to be zealous for what is good. You have to love and crave and be desirous of what is good. If you love teasing people, even unbelievers are going to know that that's wrong. And if they hear that you're a Christian, they're going to think something's wrong there. If you love to gossip about other people, Many unbelievers who you have gossiped about are going to hear you're a Christian and they're going to throw out everything you say you believe in. The thing is that for us who understand how good good is, should not be nervous about that. We should be excited about that. Because God has given you a theology. He's given you an understanding of the world that you are allowed to make mistakes but we confess those mistakes and we admit them openly and we tell people, I am a Christian and I do wrong, but I accept that that is wrong and I'm sorry. And even that can be an example of being zealous for what is good. And that's the thing I hope this can be encouraging to you is that in both of those things, you should know that even at a fundamental level, you have many reasons to explain that it is clear that God exists. And it is clear that God is good to even people who don't like him because of it. Common grace. These two things are examples of common grace, which means, as Christ explains in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, that God brings the rain on the good and the evil. Rain back then was the greatest thing you could receive because it helped your crops, which meant you get food. And God brings that to people who are good and people who are bad. God blesses people who do not love him in this life. And those are the things that you want to point them to so they can then be in right relationship with a God who wants to not only be good to them in this life, but be good to them in the life to come, the life that is going to last forever. And I hope that you have good reasons to be confident in that. So before we end, let me at least tell you where we're going next week. Today we were learning we need to be zealous for what is good. 
you need to be excited about the fact that your worldview is the clearest and most easily defendable worldview of any worldview in the whole world because the God of the universe has given evidence for it for you to use to explain it to other people. And so the goal of this is to be zealous for what is good. And Peter says in verse 13 that that means that on some level, you often won't be harmed. The obvious question is this. What happens when you do get harmed? What happens when you live in a society where they do not care about what you do and they will be out to persecute you and oppose you regardless? That is what we will study in the weeks to come. And that happens when a society decides to change what the meaning of war is that that will influence you. Let's pray. Father, we have so many reasons to trust you and to believe you and to love you and to be zealous for you, be excited about your good things because you have designed yourself in a way that you might be found. Sin obscures, sin makes it difficult, sin confuses it. But God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you remove those things and you make it clear to us. You have been so good to us to reveal that your design is on everything. The complexity of this world is not because we have evolved. It is not because there was an explosion that randomly created us. No, Lord, you created us from the dust and you put your complexity and your understanding of good and evil within us. And we are the ones who erode it. We are the ones who destroy it. We are the ones who exchange your good for a false good. Lord, help remind us that when we sin against you, we are sinning against each other and we are sinning against this world that you have created because any wrong thing that we do, Lord, because it is against your design, it destroys the society that you have created for the principles of it. And we live now in a society and much of the world has lived in societies that do so much evil, do so much terrible things, Lord, and it is so hard to navigate in a world where we feel we could be persecuted at every corner. But Lord, there is much good that you've created in us. We pray that those goods would be released, that we can explain them to other people in such a way that we can point them towards the gospel, that we can use your scriptures and we can use the face of the person across from us to explain you were created for something good. Give us the courage to do that. Give us the courage to explain to our friends who don't know you that they might be loved by you, that you take joy in their creation, knowing that you have good plans eternally waiting for them, that we must repent and confess of our sins against you and believe that your son Christ died for our sins on the cross. And as such, Lord, we have so much reason for confidence. Please give us that confidence that helps supplant and Keep these truths cemented in our hearts and in our lives. Thank you for this time and your grace in your name.